The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. How interesting that that would all work, be working around in my mind as we come today to the Scripture of Galatians chapter 5. Uh, hopefully you found your place there, Galatians 5. Uh, we'll do the f- first couple of paragraphs in that chapter today. Uh, but I wanted to try to set the stage for what we'll see here in, in Paul's argument as it's developed over these last several weeks. This, this is what came to my mind very clearly in studying this scripture. Being released from prison after a long, long time is a, is a particular phenomenon. And let, let me try to explain what I mean. Conventional wisdom might have you believe that uh, regardless of how long someone may have been imprisoned for whatever crime, they're counting the days or the months or the years. They can't wait to be released and gain their freedom, right? That, that would seem logical. But here's the interesting thing that happens. The longer someone is incarcerated, if and when they do come to the day where they're released, it's not necessarily a joyous occasion. And here's why. Over a, a period of time, let's just use this time was just in my mind, 30 years. Let's just use 30 years as an example. And for 30 years, you've lived a certain way, in a certain place, with a certain schedule, with certain rules, regulations. And then all of a sudden, one day, you are thrust back into society and you're expected to be able to adapt and socialize and and fit in but it's not that easy. One study I I found that I I read said this was in uh, 2016. Listen to what this, this gentleman found in his study about reintegration and repeat offenders. It says, when prisoners in the United States are released, they face an environment that is challenging and actively deters them from becoming productive members of society. What with uh, rules and regulations regarding the hiring of former prisoners, the small scope of things that are available to them upon their re-entry into society, within three years of release, 67.8% of offenders are re-arrested. Within five years, 77% are re-arrested. And here's what I take from that. As soon as someone gains their freedom, they quickly discover they're unable to function in society. They become so conditioned to their environment within the prison walls, they find it difficult to adapt 
to life as a free man, and the difficulty may prove to be so profound they would actually commit another crime just to be sent back to the prison where they can find peace. That's, um, that's an, a very unfortunate but an interesting uh, truth. And I say truth because it's, it's well documented in this country. And here's why I bring that up. Sometimes when someone has been in the prison of sinfulness and unforgiveness and worldliness for so long, and then they discover the freedom in Christ. It's not just a snap of the finger to adapt to a new reality or to be able to function in a new way of life. Finding this, oh, you would think, well, that would be the, the most wonderful feeling ever. Oh, and I'm, I'm free now. I've been forgiven. I don't have to live in bondage to sin anymore. And, but then all of a sudden, that was familiar. And this new life, although wonderful, is scary. It's unfamiliar. I don't know how to act. And it could cause you to revert back to previous ways because that's where you find comfort because you've been there for so long. The Apostle Paul is addressing that particular issue today in Galatians chapter 5. That's why in last week's message at the end of chapter 4 there was a stress on we're free in Christ. We're not children of the the slave woman to, to use that terminology from Ishmael and Isaac. We're, we're children of the free woman. We're we're free. We're heirs with Christ. Everything has been given to us because of Jesus. And that's that's true and it's easy to say, but it's not so easy to appropriate that into your life. To live in the freedom you've been given. So with that in mind, with that, that thought in mind, I want to read the first 15 verses here in Galatians chapter 5 and then talk about a, a, a few things that we see here in the text that I believe will be helpful for us. Uh, the words will be on the screen. You can follow along or you can follow along in your Bible. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, here's what the Bible says. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. 
I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who's disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Father, in Jesus' name I pray that you would use this word today to speak clearly to our hearts. Help us understand and help us do what you tell us. For the glory of Christ, amen. This, this scripture today, it, it almost seems like it could be a broken record. You hear what Paul says, what he's been saying, how he's kind of harping on this this issue, this principle of freedom versus slavery and how you've got freedom in Christ, you're no longer bound by the law, you're under the grace of God which was provided by the death of Christ and His resurrection. And so why is it you're, you're kind of uh, teetering between these two different attitudes? Why, why can't you just understand the truth and live in that? Well, that's easy uh, to talk about, right? Why, why do you think there's a phrase Easier said than done. You know, why does that even exist? Because that's the truth. It's easy to say something and to, to intellectually know it to be true, but then when you live it out, then it's not so easy, right? Well, there's a few things here in this text I believe will help us to understand what Paul's saying. The first thing we see in the first six verses, embrace your freedom in Christ. Embrace your freedom in Christ. We know that Christ purchased our freedom. And it was free to us, but it was very costly. He purchased our freedom with His blood on the cross. He gave His life. So, with that in mind, when Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, it was for freedom Christ set us free, therefore, keep standing firm. There's two commands, imperative commands, right in the First verse, keep standing firm in your Christian liberty, your freedom, and do not be tangled again by the yoke of slavery. So there's a, kind of a positive and a negative uh, command that both lead us to the same conclusion. We're free in Christ. And we need to stand in that freedom. We need to embrace the freedom we've been given because it's very costly. And so then he's trying to work those things out to try to help, under, help folks understand uh, the, the point he's making. And so here's what he does. Remember the, uh, the whole context here. Uh, these Judaizers, these uh, false teachers, were trying to compel the new believers to be circumcised according to Jewish law because what they were trying to tell them was... Well, I know you say you believe in Jesus, and that's great, but if you really, really want to be a, a, a say, you know, right with God, if you really want to be saved, use that terminology, you need to follow the law too. So, so it was the, the age-old lie 
Jesus is not enough to save you. Oh, it's good. I know He's good and everything, but you still have to do these things or else you're really not saved. You're really not right with God unless you do these things. Well, you know what that is? There's a Greek word for it. Hogwash. It's, it's, it's not true. Okay? Jesus is more than enough. You don't need anything but Jesus. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That, that's a constant refrain throughout the New Testament. There, there is no Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. That's it. More than enough. So he's centering his argument, though, on that circumcision because that was in focus here with these churches. But here's the thing. Circumcision has some implications. It'll empty the cross of its power. It'll cause you to be in debt to the whole law. It'll sever you from Christ. It will remove you from the grace of God. James Boyce said that to choose legalism is to relinquish grace as the principle by which one desires to be related to God. Christ's followers are supposed to be different from the world, not just lumped in with everybody else. Different. We have the Holy Spirit of God. We live by faith in contrast to living by the flesh. We have the hope of righteousness before God and we work out our faith in love because of Christ. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prepared in advance for us to walk in them. And that, that's something that's a, a benefit of salvation, not a cause of it. Does that make sense? So in other words, we don't do good work to earn salvation. We do good works because we have been saved. Okay? I, just, I feel like I say that all the time, but I feel like you can't say that too much. We need to remember that. So let me just say a word here before we move to the next section about eternal security. Because in these first six verses... There's a few phrases that might cause someone on a, a quick reading to think, wait a second, I didn't think we could lose our salvation. But he says right there, you're severed from Christ, you've fallen from grace. What does that mean exactly? Well, here's what it means. If you would seek to do work in order to secure or gain your salvation, here's what that tells me. You didn't really understand grace to begin with. We cannot lose our salvation because of this one fact. I didn't save myself, so I can't unsave myself. My salvation does not depend on my good works. My salvation depends on the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross on my behalf. So... Since I didn't save myself, I can't stop being saved because it didn't depend on me. In other words, the only way I can... If I'm genuinely saved by the blood of Jesus, the only way I can stop being saved is for God to stop being God. And, and that's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. See, thankfully, the only thing I brought to the table in that transaction of my salvation was the sin 
that needed to be forgiven. That was my contribution. Jesus brought everything. So, what Paul's trying to, to stress to these new believers in the Galatian churches is that, hey, are you sure you understood the gospel when I preached it to you? Because if you were to go back to this, it would, try, it would, it would make me think that you didn't understand what I was saying. Because grace is exactly what it is defined to be. It's unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. It was given to you. Does that make sense? So, so Paul's not contradicting uh, you know, thousands of years of Scripture. Paul's stressing to them why it is so important that you walk in the freedom bought for you by Jesus. Don't turn back to this uh, legalism because that's not how you get saved. Okay? So, so that's what he's talking about uh, in these first six verses. I hope that's, that's clear. If it's not, please, please come talk to me afterwards because I don't want anybody to leave here confused about something as important as salvation. Embrace your freedom in Christ. Number two, embrace the truth of Christ. Embrace the truth of Christ. You know, false teachers can mess up a perfectly good thing. You know, you look at verse 7, and Paul's, you almost sense a little bit of uh, annoying attitude here. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you? Who came in and, and distracted you from obeying the truth? You were running well. Someone enticed you to be disobedient to the truth. And by the way, verse 8 makes very clear. You might want to, if you write in your Bible, underline this, circle it, star, do something. Verse 8. God is not the source of your confusion. Amen. He's not the author of confusion in any way, shape, or form. If you're confused about something with, with Scripture, just be assured that... The devil's whispering in your ear. Because the devil's a liar. Nothing true comes from him. And he would love nothing more than for you to be confused about the most important thing in a person's life, which is how you are saved from your sins. God is not the source of your confusion. But then look what Paul says in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Anybody ever made bread? Got to put yeast in it, right? What's the thing about yeast that happens after you put a little bit in the, in the dough? It, it rises. It grows, right? But it doesn't take much, right? And it, and it grows. Well, well, guess what that means to us? What, why, why would Paul say that? Why would he put that verse 9 in there? A little bit of leaven is enough to leaven the whole batch of dough. And in the same way, just a little bit of false teaching is enough to poison the church. Just a little bit of unrepentant sin is enough to bring the judgment of God down on a church. Have you ever wondered, and, and, and I hate that this is the truth, but it seems that very few churches anymore actually practice biblical church discipline because it's uncomfortable. Because here's how it usually goes. Well, you know, I'm a sinner too. What right do I have to, to say anything about anybody else? Isn't that judgmental? 
Well, I mean, you might think that until you read the Bible. God said something about that. He commanded it. So I suppose it's okay if God told us to do it, right? But you have to have the right attitude, the right perspective. You have to be humble and gentle because you understand you're a sinner. And that familiar old phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. Right? But let me tell you why it's so important. If a church allows sin inside its fellowship, unchecked, not handled, not addressed in love, then the church loses its right to ask God for anything. And here's why. If we're not willing to be obedient to the Word of God and to strive for the holiness of God, why under heaven would God answer a prayer for a church that is not seeking His glory, but willing to just let things go. Well, I know, I know the Bible says we're supposed to live this way, but, you know, life's hard. It's difficult. We, you know, cut us a break. Really? I don't recall anything like that being said on Mount Calvary. I don't recall Jesus cutting corners taking an easy way out. I do recall a lot of suffering and a lot of hardship and a lot of difficulty in order that we might be set free from sin. You know what Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says? You can jot it down and read it later, but I'm going to tell you what it says. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How can we who have been freed from sin live in it any longer? Grace is not permission to do what we want. Grace is freedom to do what Jesus wants. We can't let those things go. That's why uh, Paul is so clear to say, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. A little false teaching will poison the church. A little unrepentant, unaddressed sin will bring judgment on all of us. But even with that warning being stated so clearly, Paul's confidence is in the Lord on behalf of the people that are going to hold on to the Gospel. And then the most interesting thing happens. The end of verse 10, Paul gets a little personal. He uses a third person singular pronoun, he. Now why does that matter? I'll tell you. You know, we're talking about false teachers that have infiltrated the church, right? Well, apparently, there was a ringleader to the false teacher group. And, you know, when, when the letter shows up, the false teachers are in the church. So they're hearing this too. But the ringleader's hearing it too. Because look what he says in verse 10. The one who is disturbing you, will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So can you imagine that one person sitting in the congregation that day when the letter's being read and that verse shows up? 
Oh, he's going to be judged by God, whoever he is, and everybody. You know how you do. You know how we do, right? You know who they're talking about. He's not named, but everybody knows, right? That's how it works in a small town. right? Everybody, everybody knows everything, right? So they knew who it was. And you could just picture the whole congregation just kind of turning and staring at one person. You, you're in trouble, buddy. You're in trouble. Paul pointed it out that was undoubtedly a ringleader and as the letters being read, that, that one person probably didn't feel too comfortable at this point. Now Paul had been accused of preaching things that were convenient. Now I know that sounds odd for somebody like Paul, but he had been, been accused of preaching about circumcision only when it was beneficial to him, but the problem is... He was being persecuted. So if he was not preaching the gospel, then the persecution would have stopped. And that's his point here in verse 11. If I'm still preaching circumcision, if I'm still telling you to obey the Jewish law, then why are these Jewish law teachers upset with me? The, the point is, it's almost like a rhetorical question. Because if I'm still preaching the law, then the stumbling block of the cross would have been abolished or removed. You know what the word for stumbling block is right there? Scandalous. The scandal of the cross. You know what a scandal is? It's something that is seen as a snare or a trap or a temptation. It's something that's so offensive that it arouses fierce opposition. So understand that when Paul is preaching the scandal of the cross of Christ, that's why he's being persecuted. Because he's preaching the truth. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul would write that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We all know about Paul, Right? Just at least in general terms? Was there a more fierce defender of the gospel that you can think of? Paul was the most uh, staunch defender of the gospel in, in much of human history. And <laughs> this is... Uh, Alright, so um, let me look who's in the room here. Uh, how, what's the age here of the people in the room? Alright, I'm going to try to be... I'll try to be subtle. Verse 12. You know, we're talking about circumcision. Well, Paul says, I'll tell you what you can do with those false teachers. Since we're talking about circumcision, you got the knife out already. Why don't you just go ahead and finish the job? Read it. It's in the Bible. Verse 12. I wish that all these false teachers would just go on and castrate themselves. And, and, and that's, that's bold language, right? But do but you know why he wants them to do that? He's got a purpose. It's not just to make a point. He says, you know what? If they would do that, if they would be no longer able to reproduce, maybe that would stop this flow of false teaching that's infiltrated the church. Let's just go and get, hey, you, out of the gene pool. You, you don't get to have any more children because we don't need to further this nonsense that you're teaching the church. It's got to stop. And if that's what we have to do to make it stop, well then, alright, line up. 
The sword is sharp. But, but alright, I know that's funny, but, but listen to wh- why that's important. That's how important the truth of Christ is to Paul. That, that's how important. That's the, the lengths to which he is willing to go to stop the false teaching and ensure the transmittance of the truth of the gospel to the next generation of the church. It's that important. You know, uh, there's this. I hadn't planned to say this. Um, there's a scene in the movie, The Patriot. The battle is 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 fierce. It has heated up quite uh, extensively. Men in the church were enlisted to fight. If you've seen the movie, you might remember what the preacher said when he walks out with his gun and people's eyes, wait, preacher, you're you're coming with us? He said, yeah, because what's the job of the preacher? You're supposed to preach the truth, but sometimes you have to defend the flock from wolves. Sometimes you have to fight for the truth. And, And the truth of the gospel is worth fighting for. If you don't believe me, just do a Google search, a random search on the internet of Protestant denominations that have changed their doctrines over the last 100 years. And you'll see a list of well-known mainline Protestant denominations who have sacrificed the truth on the altar of offensiveness. And they decide, well, that's, people are getting upset about that. We don't, do we really have to hold on to that truth? Well, I know the Bible says this, but, do we, I mean, come on. Let's just, let, can't we all just get along? The Bible didn't call us to get along. The Bible called us to obedience to Christ. And, you know, things have gotten worse and worse and worse over the years. And they will continue to do so. But they will be exponentially sped up when preachers and Christians don't stand on the Word and preach the truth and not just preach the truth, but live by the truth and share the truth and hold the truth of Christ above every other worldly doctrine. There's no... Our belief statement says that the the Word of God is our final authority for doctrine and practice. We either believe it or we don't. We either hold to that or we don't. And, And we don't get to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we want to follow. It's all or nothing. That's how it's always been. And Paul, in his typical fashion, cannot stress that enough. He spoke out of a concern for the gospel of grace and for the truth of God. Finally, number three, serve with the love of Christ. We have to embrace the freedom we have in Christ. We need to embrace the truth we have in God's Word and in the Word of Christ, but we need to serve with the love of Christ. God has called us into liberty. 
That means we can do things or omit things based on their relationship to salvation. That's what Christian liberty is all about, is having the freedom to do what is in accordance with God's Word. It's not this mistaken principle of, oh, we're under grace, we can do whatever we want to do, it's all forgiven. Well, you don't understand grace then. Because if we want to cling to sinful ways because we're uh, mistakenly thinking that we're forgiven for sin when we do it on purpose after the fact, uh, that's not the way grace works. Grace is not license for sin. Grace is freedom for obedience. That was good. Y'all, y'all write that. Somebody write that down. I didn't. I don't have that written down anywhere. That's that's really really good. It's not an excuse to indulge the desires of the flesh. Just like I read from a moment ago from Romans six, we don't want to continue in sin. We don't want to live in it anymore. Serve one another through love. This one act is the fulfillment of the whole law. You will love your neighbor as yourself. All the way back from Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then beware of behavior that's contrary to God's command to serve with love. What he's talking about here, this is an interesting verse, verse 15, about if you bite and devour one another, don't be consumed. Talking about wounding the soul or uh, to cut someone with reproach. You know what the opposite of love is in a Christian context? Insult. Gossip. Conflict. Jealousy. Envy. Division. That's not what that's not what Jesus died for in His church. We serve. We love. We understand. Listen, here's how that's possible. We understand every one of us is messed up. We all need help. We all need grace. We all need mercy. We all need forgiveness. When we don't offer those things to each other, in that moment, we have assumed a superiority complex and we think we're better than everybody. We've forgotten how much Jesus had to forgive in our lives. So we think we have the right to treat someone else like that. We don't. None of us does. We all are... This sounds so wrong to say to church. Uh, We are all equally worthless. And we all equally need Jesus. None of us is in a position of superiority toward another. We are all desperately, desperately needy of Christ. But you know, uh, in, in all this, he, here's the principle that we start to understand. Habits are hard to break. They're very hard to break. Especially habits that have been in place for a long time. So what will it take uh, to, for us to break free from the habits of of legalism or works-based righteousness? What's going to enable us to turn the tide of of generational sin in our families? How how can that happen? Is, Is there a possibility? It's only by the grace and mercy and love of Christ that we will be freed from the bondage of sin and the slavery 
of legalism. Only a relationship with Jesus will liberate us from this way of life that comes so easily. So, so how, how are we supposed to find that? How, how does that happen? Jesus Christ came into a broken, sinful world on a rescue mission. Call it what you will, but that's ultimately what it was. When Jesus came to this earth, He emptied Himself of His glory. He took the form of a servant. He was found in the likeness of men. He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Jesus lived a a sinless life which we could not live. Jesus died a sinner's death which we should have died. He rose victoriously on the third day, soundly defeating death, hell, and the grave. And He ascended triumphantly back into the heavens where He now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, faithfully interceding for us with our Father. And because of that, because of what He's done, God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that's what Jesus did. And so, if you are here today, and you are not in a relationship with Jesus, if you are not following Him, if you, if you have struggles with believing that this is the truth, maybe you need to surrender. Maybe you need to, to give up trying to live your life the best way you know how. Because the best way we know how is no good. Maybe you need to give it all to Jesus. Maybe that's what He's whispering in your ear today. I don't know what He's telling you. Many times I'll preach and I don't have a clue how God's dealing with somebody sitting out there. Because God knows more than we do. But I do know this. If you have been paying attention and listening to God, He has been speaking. And it's my prayer that whatever it is He's telling you to do or, or telling you not to do or however He is working in your heart right now, I pray that you're paying attention and that you listen to what He tells you. You don't need to do what I say but we all need to do what He says. And today may be the day of your salvation. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 